Today on Ag News Daily. Every sector of the economy, for a variety of reasons, but primarily because of policies set by the state governments or the federal government, are reducing their emissions but one, our farmers. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined today by Tanner Winterhoff, sponsored by Your Soy Checkoff. Tanner, it's not a very Friday kind of day. We're going to have really cool temperatures this weekend. Yeah, we got a shot of rain as I woke up this morning, and it does. It looks like we're going to cool off here for a little bit. Not good golfing weather. <laughs> it depends who you are. Well, I know there's... There's some out there that any day's good golfing weather day. I, I'm a fair weather fan. I mean, I, I do like to golf, but I like to golf when it's about 70 degrees and sunny. And this weekend will be highs of 55 degrees and rainy. So not ideal. <laughs> You're right. As a dad of two softball players, it might not make for a very fun Saturday. No, I would imagine not. Areas of the country that could definitely use some rain, and I wish we could send it their way. On Tuesday, the U.S. Drought Monitor released their most recent estimates as to, you know, just how dry we are here in the United States. And most notably, Texas stood out of all the states. 90% of the state is in drought condition, with well over 50% of the state considered extreme or exceptionally dry. Um, the same goes for states like Oklahoma, Louisiana. Lots of states are continuing to deal with some very dry weather, whereas you turn to other states and they're dealing with some very wet weather. So certainly wish we could send it their way. But this year, the question mark becomes what happens for Texas cotton? Uh, historically, Texas cotton growers abandon a portion of their planted acres that they consider uneconomical to harvest. And the average for the past 10 years sits around 29% of Texas's cotton crop. But this year, Grow Intelligence is estimating that 47% of cotton may be abandoned this year. Yeah, I have a conversation on a fairly decent basis with uh, Barrett Brown of the Manure Spreader podcast, who's down there, and they haven't planted anything. It's been so dry to where it is not, there's zero soil moisture to where it's not worth even putting seeds in the ground. Uh, unfortunately, he says, he told me that there was a crop insurance deadline to where he has to at least to go out and through the motions of planting, which he feels is a waste of resources, his own personal opinion, but uh, we'll also vouch for just how dry it is to where there's not even enough moisture to get a seed to germinate. Well, Tanner, and you think about <clears throat> insurance planting dates, kind of the opposite story is going on, of course, up in the Dakotas where prevent plant is becoming the topic of discussion. The cutoff date to plant corn in most of North Dakota is around May 25th, which is just a couple of weeks away. Uh, farmers have a little a couple bit. Couple of days. Sorry, it's a, couple a couple of days. Of days. Thank you. I'm <laughs> I'm off this morning. Apparently, they have a couple more days when it comes to the soybean crop insurance deadline, which is around June 10th. But a lot of discussion is starting to circulate as to whether or not we will see 2019 prevent plant acres, Tanner. And it's interesting. John Newton, who is with the American Farm Bureau, 
Federation shared some interesting things on Twitter. I like to follow along with him, but he, and I think actually maybe he switched roles recently. Anyways, not the point. The point is that he shared an interesting graphic uh, earlier this week that said since 1996, there have been two years with slower corn planting progress than this year. It was 2013 where we had 3.6 million acres of prevent plant corn and 2019 where we had 11.4 million acres of prevent plant corn. So he didn't exactly draw the line suggesting we would see that, but I think that's a pretty clear indication of where we might be this year. There are several people in our area, Delaney, that are concerned about getting corn planted before the crop insurance date. And some have already written letters to their local legislatures to see if there's a way to get that extended. Um, Because there's still hope. Obviously, this is one of the most valuable Mm -hmm. corn crops that farmers in the Corn Belt have planted for a long time. So they want to make sure that they still get their opportunity to do that. But it seems like we're staying on a weather focus because it looks like that North Dakota area you were just discussing and Minnesota are under a freeze warning this weekend. So uh, we've got record high temperatures in Texas that have uh, required the highest electricity use in the history of Texas to battle those heated temps. And you've got freeze warnings up in Minnesota. So temperatures should drop below 30 degrees Fahrenheit. But then, like we were discussing here, our Iowa, Missouri, Illinois area have chances of thunderstorms this weekend with some cool temps. So hot in Texas, cool up in Minnesota, and uh, quite a variety of different weather patterns shifting through the U.S. But let's take a minute right here to have a message from our partner this week. Who mapped the soybean genome? You did. Yes, you. Better varieties are on the way. Today's soybean farmers, that's you, are achieving big breakthroughs in seed. How? By pooling your resources through your soy checkoff. Your soy checkoff research sequenced the soybean genome to help seed companies and other researchers bring better varieties faster to your operation. See all the ways your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org slash hopper. Well, Tanner, as we switch tracks to talk about soybeans, let's talk about wheat because we have the final hard winter wheat tour results. The Wheat Quality Council's 2022 tour ended yesterday, Thursday, May 19th, started in Manhattan, Kansas, and had a final total weighted average of 39.7 bushels per acre, which is slightly higher than what the USDA projected for the state of Kansas with a 39 bushel per acre yields. Uh, however, more than 80 tour participants predicted total production for Kansas, which is of course the nation's top wheat producing state, will be most definitely lower than the USDA's forecast. And they also put total production to be pegged at 261 million bushels compared to the 271 million bushel figure that the USDA collected and shared at the beginning of May. So, Certainly not favorable numbers coming out of uh, that tour. No, and there's not good news coming out of France either. So overnight, uh, coming from Paris, stated that French cereal crops are suffering a hot spell because their drought is worsening. So uh, another 7% decline in their crop rating. That is uh, 73% of their crop is good to excellent. So when you compare it to what you just discussed, Their wheat crop is still in fair condition, but the extreme dry weather has continued to cause issues 
with theirs. But when you transfer down to Brazil and you look at the Safrina corn crop, they just narrowly avoided a freeze. So it was getting close there. Um, obviously, we're looking at the states of Mato Grosso and uh, Piranha that have been having really great growing conditions. They've had, uh, you know, a substantial amount of rainfall since planting's gone. They've had great GDUs coming from temperature and climate. And so 30% of Brazil's corn crop looks to be in excellent condition. But there was that hiccup Sunday going into Monday where we thought there would be a chance of a really detrimental freeze. But we escaped. They're still staying really cool. As you push north a little further, they are battling some drier conditions. So not the entire crop rated good to excellent, um, but certainly a quick little look around the world as to how wheat's doing in France and that second crop corn is doing in Brazil. And wheat is uh, probably most notably the most important crop for feedstuffs, Tanner. I mean, you know, you can deal without protein to some extent with livestock, but you, you have to have wheat to produce bread and pasta and some of those cheaper products that everyone can afford at the grocery store. So that certainly is interesting new interesting news on this Friday afternoon. But I want to switch tracks here a little bit and talk about the dairy industry. This is something that's been going on. We haven't shed a lot of light to, but there has been a ongoing dairy feud between the U.S. and Canada. And this has gone back for years and probably decades, actually. Um, but under the USMCA agreement, you know, there were supposed to be some policy changes that were enacted. And so basically this past December, it was ruled by the World Trade Organization that Canada had manipulated its tariff rate quotas in order to limit the amount of U.S. dairy imports that they were purchasing. So we got that ruling, and now American dairy groups are calling for retaliatory tariffs, and Vilsack said Canadian officials should be capable of reading between the lines about what's next. But he didn't give an indication of what's next. He just shared that that is uh, what's on the path forward. I would assume that they're going to hold Canada's feet to the fire, but they're really trying to push. And he said that the issue is one that he's not going to give up on, but they're essentially trying to get more U.S. dairy imports into the Canadian market, which, of course, uses a quota system up there in Canada. Yeah, another one of those investigations that it'll be interesting to see what the actual penalty is one side to the other you know, whatever facts come about um, but another segue even kind of closely related investigation wise comes uh, as proposed changes to dicamba use were presented on may 16th so just earlier this week Bayer submitted a proposed amendment for their 2020 registration of its Extendamax herbicide. So it involves additional use restrictions for counties where federally listed threatened and endangered species are present. So Bayer has supported the request that has come um, from the EPA with several studies conducted during 2021 in growing seasons, both here in the U.S. and uh, across the seas to help document for the U.S. District Court of Arizona that is currently facing, currently brought that lawsuit over dicamba re registration. So 
basically what is stating here is now the EPA has nine months to respond to the new proposed label restrictions from Bayer. That'll have a decision done by December 22. So we are still good to go for the 22 crop year to uh, go with the guidelines that are already in place. But possibly by the end of the year, we may have new label restrictions for 2023. So uh, in an emailed statement from BASF, uh, they stated that their company has not made a decision on proposing alternative restrictions to its Ingenia herbicide. So just extend a max right now. Um, the court filing was prompted, like I said, coming out of Arizona. But they're warning here at the end of this article to make sure that you know what the label changes were for 2022. So I quick looked that up, Delaney. It looks like it affected Minnesota and Iowa, and it was mainly related to cutoff time. So on March 15th, the APA announced the federal label amendments that stated for 2022, you could not spray dicamba on crops in Iowa after June 20th. You can't spray them in Minnesota south of Interstate 94 after June 12th and north of Interstate 94 after June 30th. So those were the only changes to the dicamba label for this crop year, but certainly another case that we need to keep an eye on in case something changes to that label. My question is, and I'm not saying that anyone should go out and spray dicamba when they shouldn't be, but how do they know or what are they going to do if someone is spraying outside of those windows? So it's my best understanding is it's just uh, generally policed. Obviously, DNR can <clears throat> can do it, but most of the time it's neighbor reported, neighbor or general public reported. You would see an Extendamax tote on the spray trailer, seeing a sprayer rolling, and then say it's June thirtieth. Um, you'd probably just get turned in. So uh, there are penalties that come with that. I'm not sure what they are, but there is there are very few actual EPA related agents or agencies out there policing this. And most of the time it's related to uh, public reports, which when you talk about environmentalists, that certainly doesn't seem to be a fair, a shortage of them out there monitoring what agriculture is doing. Well, Tanner, before we get to the markets, let's take a quick pause once again to hear from today's sponsor. Who mapped the soybean genome? You did. Yes, you. Better varieties are on the way. Today's soybean farmers, that's you, are achieving big breakthroughs in seed. How? By pooling your resources through your soy checkoff. Your soy checkoff research sequenced the soybean genome to help seed companies and other researchers bring better varieties faster to your operation. See all the ways your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org slash hopper. Well, Tanner, as you look at the overnight markets this morning, they are certainly trading in the red today as they're anticipating big moves on Monday's crop progress report. Corn down anywhere from seven to eight cents across the board. Soybeans down just slightly today, about three cents lower in the overnight heading into opening session. Uh, wheat continues to give up the losses that it put on earlier this week with its limit up moves. I believe we're still in positive uh, gains for the week as you look at where we were compared to last week. On the livestock side of things, Tanner, we're continuing to see some mixed trade in the cattle complex with live cattle higher this morning, feeder, feeder cattle lower and lean hogs lower as well. Now, Tanner, I don't even know how to tee up today's conversation because it's an interesting one to say the least. 
I was doing my best with that last news article for today, talking about environmentalists and monitoring agriculture. I think the best way that I have come to frame this up is this was a panel, correct? On your trip to DC? Yes, it was. And I think I mentioned it on the podcast before. Yep. And, and what we have chosen to do is take some clips, some responses from that panel discussion. Again, we will do our best to give segues and, and some, some viewpoints between those. But I think that the reason that we feel it's beneficial for our audience is just the pure idea of exposure to give you an idea of what maybe if you want to throw air quotes around it, the other side is thinking and considering because the more that we are aware, the more that we as agriculture can rally together and, and make sure that we have everything moving for us in our own best interest. Would you say that's right? Yeah. And I would say one other interesting comment as we head into today's panel, and I'll give a quick introduction to each of those panelists members here in just one moment. But it's interesting because I posed the question, and I think this is what I shared on the podcast previously, but you know, this was a farm broadcasting trip to DC. Yet we sat down and took the time to talk to people on the other side of the issue, obviously. And I just was starting to get really upset really quickly into the conversation because it felt right away like they were pointing finger at agriculture and saying, we are the bad guys when it comes to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions and et cetera, et cetera. But I think the other thing that's interesting to note is a couple of these panelists, I asked the question, you know, have any of you actually ever been to a farm? Do you know the things that you're asking us to do, how realistic or unrealistic those things are? And a couple of the panelists, Tanner, said that they grew up on farms, which I found even more interesting. So without further ado, let's kick it over to today's panelists. We had three that you will hear comments from. The first one here is Ben Thomas, the Senior Policy Director for the Environmental Defense Fund. The second is Lara Bryan, the Deputy Director for Water and Agriculture Nature Program with the Natural Resources Defense Council. And the third and my least favorite, I'll just say it, the one that boiled my blood the most, is Scott Faber, the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the Environmental Working Group. Tanner, so let's kick it over to some of their comments. From listening to this conversation, my the way I want to frame up the first clip here is it, it was a question focused around the farm bill and what items are included in the farm bill is specifically related to incentives to farmers for potentially helping reduce greenhouse emissions. So uh, it's certainly a different answer than I would expect to a question of how do you incentivize farmers to do more or do better? Um, but let's key it up to this audio file here for reflection. Uh, one thing we're really focused on is, is amb- ambition around methane, an issue I think that hasn't been focused on in previous bills. Certainly right now there's not the same level of research allocated to uh, livestock methane, um, and there's also not incentives. With methane emissions right now, we know technology can get us beyond uh, what we're getting now. That is, we have... Uh, both uh, products that can be used. We have systems that can be implemented. We also have strategies that can be used that will reduce uh, livestock methanes or um, uh, or redirect them. But what's missing is the incentives. The Farm Bill is all about uh, incentives that produce results. And I think if we uh, took the right approach here, we can actually work with producers to get 
greater uptake and see a reduction in methane emissions that is a big part of the climate impacts we're seeing today. This next one, Tanner, is the one that really got to me. Scott was talking out of both sides of his mouth, unfortunately, and made the comment here coming up that we'll, we'll share that farmers are the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And again, pointed the finger at farmers saying we aren't doing enough to be stewards of the land. And that's kind of a bogus claim that we make. So without further ado, here are Scott's lovely comments. What I, I know everyone in this room knows, but it probably bears repeating, which is that unless we reduce greenhouse gas emissions from farming, Unless we reduce, in particular, nitrous oxide emissions from fertilizer and methane emissions from animals in their waste, we cannot avoid a climate catastrophe. Um, Every sector of the economy, for a variety of reasons, but primarily because of policies set by the state governments or the federal government, are reducing their emissions but one, our farmers. Right now, Agriculture accounts for about, or at least, 10% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. But as every sector reduces their emissions and agriculture increases emissions, agriculture share of U.S. emissions will grow, perhaps to 20% by the end of this decade or 30% by the end of the next decade. Can't tell a story about our farmers being the best stewards when they're the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions. So if we want to treat this crisis like a crisis, we need to dramatically increase conservation spending, as Senator Stabenow and Congressman Scott proposed in the Build Back Better bill. And we also need to spend smarter. We not only need to spend more, we need to spend smarter. Right now, two-thirds of our farmers are being turned away when they seek conservation assistance through EQIP and CSB when they offer to share the cost of practices that reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So think about that for a moment. Farmers are coming to USDA, oftentimes with their own resources in the case of EQIP, and saying, we want to help share the cost of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And our government, because of our misplaced spending priorities, is turning them away. But that's just half the problem. The other problem is that of the money that is going out the door, 80% of that money is going to practices, to climate smart practices, sorry, 80% of that money is going to practices that do little or nothing to reduce emissions. So only 20% of the money that we spend through our working lands programs goes to practices that reduce emissions. And what's even more troubling is that some of the money we taxpayers provide to farmers to help share the cost of these practices are actually increasing greenhouse gas emissions. So so the short answer to your question, that was the long answer to your question. The short answer to your question is we've got to do better. We've got to spend more. We've got to meet demand for our conservation programs, but we've also got to spend smarter. In particular, we need to make climate the primary focus of programs like EQIP. We need to turn the conservation stewardship program into a climate stewardship program that is only eligible to farmers who take steps to reduce emissions. We need to reform CRP to focus 80% or more of enrollment on, on marginal lands through, uh, cont- through continuous categories like CREP, Clear 30, and the other continuous enrollment categories. So there are, there are certainly things we can do to make climate a, a priority in the next Farm Bill. We've not done those things so far. So I 
first hearing that clip again, kind of was my, my blood boiled to use your term as well. So I found an article here from Farm Bureau uh, that came written by, or at least the words of Zippy Duval. And he stated that greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture dropped more than 4% over the last year. And that was according to the EPA. So like you said, talking out of both sides of their mouth. Yes, it continues to show ag represents 10% of total U.S. emissions, but that is lower than any other economic sector when you combine them. So you, you have to look on a broader picture. But the the greatest thing is that that drop was 4.3%. And a majority of those come from tillage practices and manure management. That's fine. But we as farmers are continuing to find more efficient ways to go about doing things. And it's just unfortunate that, um, in my opinion, there's such a closed process in their minds. The incentives for farmers, I feel like they're there and they're coming. I think there's a, a segment coming up here in a little bit that'll lead into this. But um, it's interesting. The next conversation focuses a lot on methane emissions and, and the science around that. Should the USDA be stepping up to help with cost share? So, Right now, there's there's no assistant in place, but um, these next comments kind of shed light around their opinion as to how they think a program could be successful going forward. I think we we do agree on the science and and the result. It's well understood that that methane has a much higher warming potential than does carbon, uh, and so even in that cycle, that part of the cycle where it is methane is going to have an outsized effect on global warming. That is the short-term uh, potential uh, warming potential of methane that creates the near-term increased warming. That's our concern. The more we can reduce that now, the greater we uh, impact uh, we have in the short term on that warming. And that's why um, it's, it's, it's something we should be uh, taking a look at. That isn't a problem. I see this as a huge opportunity because, it, again, we have some of the solutions. We have some of the innovations that are needed. What's missing is providing that incentive because we can't expect producers, especially with the margins uh, the cattlemen are facing, uh, to make these investments on their own. It just it doesn't make business sense. That's a place where USDA, through an incentive-based program, should step up uh, and, and, and pay for adoption of that te technology, just have, uh, as we have been buying a path to affordability for other improvements on the farm through uh, EQIP and CSP. Can I just add one quick thing to that? So I, I couldn't agree more that we should make reducing methane a priority for programs like EQIP and CSP. Does anyone in this room know how much we spent in 2019 and 2020 through EQIP to pay farmers to change their feed management to reduce methane emissions? Anybody want to guess how much we spent in the last two years for which we have data available? Nothing. Zero. We spent no, we spent $1.2 billion a year through the Environmental Quality Incentives Program to share the cost of practices that help, among other things, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We did not send a penny on practices that can help farmers reduce methane emissions. So there's clearly something wrong with that. Where's all that money going? Well, a lot of it's going to structural practices that provide little benefit to the environment or, in some cases, actually increase emissions of methane. And that's a problem we need to fix in the next Farm Bill. What I said was... Right now, according to the greenhouse gas inventory that's run by EPA, 
farmers account for at least 10 percent of emissions. And I say at least 10 percent of emissions because of some work that's recently been done that suggests that it might be more like 15 percent. So if you want to fight over those numbers, I'm happy to invite our, our friends from USDA and EPA and others who help assemble the greenhouse gas database. The trends are easy to predict because we can you can look at the trends over the last five years and 10 years, looked at other sectors, transportation, energy, industrial, residential, and see emissions going down and compare that with the trends that we see from agriculture. Again, according to the government's own greenhouse gas inventory showing the trends going up. If those trends continue in the same direction, that's a bad business case for agriculture. And that's why it's so important that we take steps now in this farm bill to make the reduction of these emissions the primary focus of these conservation programs. Even if you don't agree with me, let's say you say, okay, you know, those are the government's numbers or worse, EWG's numbers, right? Even if you don't agree to me, do you re do we really want to unnecessarily, needlessly take the risk that our farmers could be responsible for 20% or 30% of greenhouse gas emissions when we can choose today in this farm bill to redirect money that's not doing us much good to, to the farmers who are lining up at these county offices saying, you know, I want to change how I use fertilizer. I want to change how I feed my animals. I want to change how I manage my manure to reduce those emissions. And you know what they're being told? No. They're being told no because we're investing that money in other things that don't produce as many benefits. That's, 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 just, that's just bad for farmers. It's bad for the environment. It's bad government. It's interesting to get their perspective on whether or not they have been to the farm, seen the practices on the farm. But when you look at an article here from Penn State Extension, you know, the numbers continue to drop. Yeah, methane is uh, a gas that is more detrimental to the ozone than carbon. But when you think about this, Delaney, you go back to an article actually written by the EWG, which, of course, you heard in that article, they gave you their EWG.org scenario. And this was written clear back in 2010 stating how agriculture can have such an increased impact into the carbon sequestration. So starting clear back in 2010 with articles referred to from 2007, and here we are now with carbon credit programs that are rolling out. So again, the frustrating part, I think, for me, Delaney, is the fact that uh, they continue to push blame, yet now are relying on the ag sector to change its practices to then sell carbon credits to other industries to give their carbon footprint a lower number. And then, Tanner, like I said earlier, a couple of the panelists shared that they were for, from farms. And so they, of course, had the opportunity to respond to my question about if they've ever even been to a farm. And, and two panelists, Lara and Ben, shared that they actually grew up on a farm. And the other two were pretty quiet. But let's let's let Laura have her say here and her experience about being raised in agriculture. In answer to your question about have we seen the practices and been on the farms, I'm from rural Tennessee. My family raised beef cattle. I, my first job was on a dairy. I was in Future Farmers of America. I think there's a bit of a misconception sometimes, and I hopefully y'all y'all know a little bit more and would know better, um, that environmental groups just don't know anything about agriculture and out of touch. In my experience, most of the people working in agricultural policy for environmental organizations have some kind of farm root or farm background that brought us to that, and that's why we love to work on it. Um, I don't get to visit farms as much as I would like to, but I get out there as often as I can, and I spend all day long talking to farmers. 
So Delaney, I think overall, um, it might've been tough to listen to listeners, but overall we wanted to share perspective because this is the conversation that Delaney witnessed happening at the Capitol, a constant barrier, whether it's truths and untruths, whether it's just political speak, like you said, out of both sides of your mouth. Uh, that's why we felt we should include it is to at least share some perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I hope that other people feel at least somewhat moved to speak with our legislators and make sure that they understand what you're doing. I know a lot of our listeners have good relationships with a lot of their local representatives, um, which I think is ultimately what you have to do because those people are heading to DC. They're enacting legislation that hopefully they understand the impacts of what that has and what that does for agriculture. And ultimately we're feeding the world. So they have to consider that at the end of the day. That's true. And if it does get your blood boiling has been our cliche of the day, you reach out to us here. And next time we go to the Capitol, we'll take you with us (laughs) because uh, the more noise that we can make, the better off we are to be heard. Absolutely, Tanner. Well, I think that's a good place to leave our listeners for this Friday afternoon. It wasn't a very Friday episode, but we certainly appreciate you sticking with us this week. We'll have more great content next week. But Tanner, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let the people go.